As you find your seats, I just want to welcome everyone here. It's, it's, um, it's just so good to be here, to be in the presence of our God and to be with each other. Um, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah the bones of, it, of its officials, the bones of its priests, the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs. And they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped. And they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. Jeremiah chapter 7 is a particularly important chapter in our study of Jeremiah. It's a particularly important chapter in the book of Jeremiah and in the prophecy of Jeremiah. And in many ways, this chapter, chapter 7, stands as a demarcation line between God and the people of Judah. We have read over the last six chapters, and we see this conversation that God is having with the people of Judah, and he's calling them out in their sin, and he's warning them of what is happening. And in chapter 7, we see this line that God draws in the sand, a demarcation line, where this is a point of no return. (laughs) Chapter 7 is an important um, chapter in the book of Jeremiah. It's so important that uh, biblical scholars today think that um, this is a rewrite, that chapter 7 is rewritten um, from post-exilic scholars who, looking back on the prophecies of Jeremiah, looked back at this chapter and said, this was it right here. So in chapter 7, we're not going to see the poetry we were used to in the first six. Um, We're going to see a prose conversation between God and Jeremiah. We're going to see a prose conversation between God and the people of Judah because this is an important point in the story of God's relationship and his covenant with the people of Judah. Uh, Chapter 7 is an important text. It's not more important than the rest, but it's one that that stands out in this place. what I just read is the, is the last part of chapter 7 and the first part of chapter 8. And what is being said here by God to the people of Judah at the time would have been horribly shocking to them. To hear that their culture, that their people would be reduced to bleached bones in a valley would have been something that would have been anathema to their way of thinking at the time. Because if you remember last week, Justin introduced us to this concept of temple theology. See, the people of Judah believed 
This is what they believed. Their culture was based on this at the time. They believed that because they were rooted in Jerusalem, because that is the place where the temple stood, and because God had promised and covenanted to David that his throne would live forever, the people of Judah believed that just because of that happy coincidence, because they live in Jerusalem where the temple is, where the throne of David is, that they were safe from all destruction. And if you remember when we walked through the, when we walked through the history of, of the time leading up to the book of Jeremiah, the people in Judah even thought they had seen this take place when Sargon II, the king of Assyria, comes down to Israel, the northern kingdom. Judah's in the south, Israel's in the north, and Sargon II comes out and wipes out all of Israel. And he stops short of the gates of Jerusalem, besieges Jerusalem, and leaves the people of Judah believed that this temple theology was sound. That just because they were the people of David, and just because they were in the city of David, where the throne of David was set, that they could exist forever in the peace of God. And so when Jeremiah reads this and says, your everything is going to be gone, your priests, your kings, everyone, your whole culture, everything that you understand is going to be gone. This would have been earth-shaking had the people of Judah had ears to hear, to listen to what God was saying. As we read the text today, we're going to go through the rest of chapter 7. As we read the text today, I want you to keep a couple of things in mind as we read the text. Keep in mind this background of temple theology. Keep in mind this temple theology that exists in Judah at the time as we engage the text. But more importantly, as we engage the text I'm going to ask you today to, to try as well as you can to feel the heart of God. The easy thing when we read Jeremiah, if you're like me, um, the easy thing is to sort of relate to the people of Judah, which is perfectly normal. It's okay. In fact, it's good. Um, it, we should relate to the people of Judah, but that's kind of the easy place that we go uh, when we read these prophecies. It's easy to find application from what is being said in Jeremiah to ourselves, to our church, to our, to our nation, to our society. It, it's perfectly normal. It's okay. Um, but the application is, is actually pretty evident. As we engage the text today, I ask that you, as, as well as you can, try to listen to the specific heart of God as he speaks. There's two conversations taking place in Jeremiah 7. There's a conversation taking place between God and Jeremiah, and there's a conversation taking place between God and the people of Judah. So as we engage the text, listen closely for that heart of God, because God's heart is not revealed any more clearly than it is in this text. So, Felds, if you could. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, 
make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called to you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did in Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen and all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and of the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I commanded you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak to speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Thank you. 
So in the first seven verses of chapter 7, you can hear God making this plea. And it's almost a final plea to the people of Jeremiah. Amend your ways. I have said to you for so long that you are doing wrong. Now amend your ways. And he says, don't trust in the deceptive words. If you amend your ways, if you don't oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave you of old, of your fathers forever. He's repeating the offer of the original covenant of the land of Canaan, the promised land that he gave them, the land that he gave them. If you would obey my words, I will let you live in this land. And you can hear the heart of God like pleading to the people of Judah. And if if, if your imagination allows you, you can almost see the people of Judah, uh, because we are them in so many ways. You can almost see them saying, yes, we'll do this. We will amend our ways. We will, we will come back. We'll do whatever you need to do. And you can almost see them lining up outside of the temple with all of their finest sacrifices to bring them to God, to say, to show you that we mean this, here are all of these sacrifices. And this is the thing that God specifically is addressing. This is this thing of the temple uh, theology that the people of Judah have that he is addressing. And God, though he issues this final appeal in the next few verses, issues his judgment. Because what he says is that um, this is what you do. I don't want to hear what it is that you say you will do. This is what you do. You listen to deceptive words. You steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known. What does that sound like? What is that a list of, of things? I mean, it's not as if God is saying to the people of Judah, you can't even keep the Deuteronomic and, and Levitical laws, this, this long list of things. God isn't even saying that to them. God reads back to the people of Judah nothing but the Torah, the Ten Commandments, and he lists the Ten Commandments and he says, this is what you do. This is what you do. You steal, you murder, you commit adultery, you swear falsely, you make offerings to Baal. You cannot even keep the Ten Commandments. And you come to my house, you come to the house that's called by my name, and you bring these things that you want to bring. And you bring these things as if everything's going to be okay. And God is saying finally to the people of Judah that it's not going to be okay. The temple theology that you have bought, that you have created of your own mind, has led you astray, and I'm not going to let it go on anymore. Um, This is the critical issue, because it's easy for us to kind of think of the people of Judah as being these heathen, godless people, non-churchgoers. It's easy for us because we've read all of these things that Jeremiah says that they do. And it's easy for us to kind of think of these people as being the people that are just completely lost. They don't have any idea who God is, but that's not the case. The people that God is talking to are people that spend a lot of time in the temple. These are the people that cling very, very tightly to the temple that they have. And God makes a declaration very clear about this temple that they serve in. And he makes a declaration that's very clear about the sacrifices that they are lined up to bring every day. See, the people of Judah are in a rhythm, and it's a bad rhythm. They're in a rhythm of, of false worship. They're in a rhythm of murder and lying and stealing. That's all very true. But they're also in a rhythm of religion. And these people come to the temple every day, 
And, and, and at, at the appointed times on the Sabbath, they come to the temple and they offer their sacrifices. And God issues a declaration as shocking as the statement that Jeremiah read before about their sacrifices. And in verses 21 through 26, he says, um, your sacrifices are essentially worthless. Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in that day I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. God is saying to these people that the religion that you have, this temple theology, this worship of the temple, and this belief that you are okay just because of where you are and what I've called you is no longer good. It has never actually been good. But now I'm letting you know that once and for all, it's gone. And I'm going to do this thing that Jeremiah says he's going to do. Now, a quick word about the history of sacrifice. This is like a 30,000-foot view of the, of the sacrifices of, of the people of Judah and Israel. Sacrifice is something that existed in all ancient religions. Um, the, the actual history of where sacrifices began is very difficult for anyone to pin down. Sacrifices were part of the most ancient religions, and they've been a part of even the Hebrew religion. Moses sacrificed in the wilderness when he was away from Egypt. Obviously, the Passover lamb was a sacrifice, but a very much different one that we find out later in Scripture. But sacrifice was a part of the rhythm of religion of the people of Judah and Israel. Not just because they were God's people, but because they lived in this broader culture where sacrifices were the norm. So when God speaks a specific declaration about sacrifice, he is saying something very clear about the cutting off the circumcision of the people of Judah that we've talked about that is going to take place. Because your sacrifices, even the ones that are ordained by Scripture, are no longer going to be effective for you. And the, and the, and the Hebrew people, there were a, a number of, of sacrifices they did. They did their sin offerings, they had their guilt offerings, and they had burnt offerings. And these offerings were all offerings of atonement. And an offering of atonement is made as a propitiation for my sin. So if I sin, I offer a lamb that takes the place of that sin. And that lamb is killed, the, the punishment that I deserve, the lamb is killed for propitiation of my sins. And therefore I am absolved. I am atoned of the sins that I was guilty of. The problem with the people of Judah in this day is this rhythm of atonement and propitiation because part of the rhythm of their life was this rhythm of worshiping false gods of stealing of murdering of violating the torah and then every day or every sabbath coming back and saying here's my sacrifice now make me clean and god is done with it he's done with this rhythm and what he says is that when i the day i brought them out of the land of egypt i did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices see right now um, the only obedience that the people of judah are familiar with is this rote obedience of bringing sacrifices to make themselves clean again so that they can coexist in this temple theology so that in theory if I'm somebody from, the, from, the, from Judah, I can go sin all I want to during the day, during the week. I can come essentially to church. I can come to the temple. I can receive forgiveness and atonement for my sins and just go back and do what I was doing before. Why? Because I'm part of the temple. I'm part of Judah. 
it doesn't matter what I do as long as I obey the requirement of the sacrifices. And God says to these people, it's done. No more am I going to let you do this because that's not who I am. That's never been who I was. And it's not who I'm going to be for you in the future. Because God is saying something very clear. He says, on the day I brought you out of Egypt, I did not command sacrifices. Now, in Exodus 20, in Exodus 20, God does lay out the rules for the altar, how the altars will be treated, but he does not give them commands for sacrifice. On the day that he brings them out of Egypt, what God says to them is this, you yourselves, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, he's talking to Moses, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, listen to that. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, period. Period. He did not say, and you will sacrifice to atone for your sins. And he did not say, and you will make burnt offerings to atone for your sins. And he did not say that you will do guilt offerings to atone for your guilt. He said, if you will listen to my voice, and if you will keep my covenant, then you will be my people in this land that I will give you. Period. That's what God spoke to them when he brought them out of Egypt. And so when God in Jeremiah is saying this about sacrifices, he is saying, I'm done with your sacrifice. Because essentially, what does a sacrifice say? A sacrifice says that I have sinned, I have transgressed, and I have violated you, right? And so the sacrifice is focused on who? Me. The sacrifice is focused on me. If I offer a sacrifice, the person I violated, so if if Jake and I are in conflict and I do something, it's saying I'm sorry. It's, 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 it's about me because I need Jake to absolve me of that thing that I did, right? And that's the problem with temple theology. Temple theology was all about the people of Judah and it had nothing whatsoever to do with the person of God and who God really was. And so the people of Judah had completely missed God for centuries had missed him. And the people of Israel had missed him before that. They didn't understand who God was. They didn't care who God was. And they didn't care to hear from other people who he was going to be for them in the future. And so God says, your sacrifices to me are worthless. They mean nothing to me. And get this, when God says, take your burnt offering and you might as well eat it, (laughs) what he's saying, the burnt offering was the portion that was reserved for God's consummation. And God says, I don't even want any of that. You might as well eat it because it's going to do you as much good by eating it yourself as if you reserved it for me. That's the depth of this cutoff. This sacrifice will have no more effect for me. Um, What God is really saying here is, um, you have made the temple something that I never intended for it to be. And that's why I'm going to destroy it. In verse 11, we hear God speak the words that we later hear Jesus speak in Jerusalem in the same city. 
You have made my house that's called by my name, the place that was constructed for me to physically dwell. You have made this a den of robbers. Now, think about what that means. For a long time, when I, when I would think about Jesus saying that, I would think about the money changers, right? And the people that were actually physically exchanging the money and doing the cheating and swindling and as, as, if, as, if, God, as if Jesus was, was criticizing them. But listen to what that actually means. You have made my house a den of robbers means that this place has become a place of safety and safe passage for evildoers. It's not so much that evildoers are coming into my place. It's that this is where they are safe because you have made them safe through this ritual of sacrifice. Because you have placed sacrifice so high now, it doesn't matter who you are when you come into my house. You just offer these sacrifices that you'll be safe. You just offer these sacrifices at the end of the day, you can say, yay, God, yay, temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And we celebrate and we leave and we go back to our sin. We return to our vomit. And then the next day we come back to the temple so that we can have safe passage again from the God who has every right to destroy us from the beginning. And that's what God is saying. So in verses, um, so in verses 21 to 22, when he says this, um, and, and he says your, your, your sacrifices are worthless, he is breaking this once and for all. This rhythm that the people of Judah are in, this religious rhythm of looking out for myself, to care for myself so that I can be atoned, so that I can be on God's side, so that I can be right, is gone once and for all. But listen, this doesn't have anything to do with God breaking his covenant. This has to do with God acknowledging that the people had broken the covenant long before. And in verses 12 through 15, God says this other shocking thing to these people. He says that this temple, that Jerusalem, will be like Shiloh. Now Shiloh is in the northern kingdom. It's in, it's in old Israel. Israel at this point in time, remember, is completely desolate. But Shiloh, Shiloh was the place where God first put his tabernacle. When they came out of the wilderness, the tabernacle was placed in Shiloh. The mercy seat of God, the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle was placed in Shiloh. And this is the place that God said, I will meet with men and men will meet with me. And God says to these temple theologians that this temple, this very temple that you, that you go to, this place where you come to offer sacrifices will be just like Shiloh. Go to Shiloh now, Jeremiah tells those people. And these people would have known. These are real people in a real historical context. They would have known what he was talking about, that Shiloh was a place of desolation. Nobody went there, period, let alone to meet with God. And so God is saying that this place that's called by my name, the place where I have dwelt, it will be torn down. It will be like the place of Shiloh. Because why? Because you have valued sacrifice and religion more than you have valued obedience. And that's the real key of Jeremiah 7. If you read with me, um, but this command I gave them, verse 23, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you should be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. 
Sounds exactly like Exodus 19, right? He's repeating that same covenant. This is my covenant. My covenant itself has nothing to do with the sacrifices that you might offer to atone for your sins. Now we know (laughs) that it had everything to do with atonement. It had to do with God's sacrifice for us, right? Not what we could bring to him to make ourselves right with him, but something that God could bring to make us right with him. But God's covenant was never, ever about sacrifice. And, And listen, the people of Judah should have known this. This is not something that was foreign to them. Ryan, could you put the slide up? In the, in the days of Samuel, in the days of Samuel, God gives a command to King Saul to go into a land and to completely destroy it, to wipe it out, to completely do that. And Saul doesn't. He chooses not to do so. What does Saul do instead? Saul chooses to save the best things from this enemy land notionally, so that they can be offered for sacrifice to God. And what does God say to him? Let's read this together. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So what God is saying, these two things, Two things are more valuable to me than all of the things that you can offer. You to listen, and then you to obey. This is more valuable to me than all of the fat of the rams. Anything that you can offer, and this is the thing that you've ignored for so long. My family has a rhythm, and I apologize to my kids. They might be a little embarrassed by this. But my family has this rhythm, and it seems like it takes place every week. I have this conversation with my kids. Um, sometimes it's in big matters and sometimes it's in really small matters. I'm just going to pick a small matter. I have a shed in my backyard, right? And in this shed is where I keep the things that have some value to me, like my lawnmower and my tools and things like that. But it's also where the kids keep their bikes. And I, I have this conversation with my kids every week when I come home from, I come home from work and I pull my car into the driveway and I see the shed's doors wide open. And I know, I know my kids are out somewhere on their bikes. They're out playing with their friends. And we have a fine neighborhood. No one's going to come into my shed and steal all of my valuable stuff. Uh, I know this, but there's the principle of it. And my kids know, my kids know that when they get their bikes out of the shed, those doors are to be closed and not left wide open. And I have this conversation with my kids every week. And I say, kids, when you take your bikes out, close the shed doors. And my kids will always say what? I'm sorry. And what do I always say? I don't want to hear sorry. I want the doors shut. Right? Sorry is just the sacrifice. Right? And that's what God is saying. I value your listening more than I value your sacrifice. I value your obedience more than I value your sacrifice. And all the other parents are going like this. I value your obedience so much more than I value your sacrifice. Why is that? Because if you listen and if you obey, sorry isn't necessary. You never have to offer the sacrifice if you would just be in my covenant with me. 
if you would just listen to my words and obey the things that I gave you, basic stuff, the Torah, (laughs) but more importantly, just to hear me, to be with me, if you would listen and obey, you wouldn't need to bring the sacrifices. You wouldn't need to bring them at all. And so God is turning this whole religion, this whole temple theology, completely on its head as if he was taking the temple itself and shaking it out to get rid of all of the the crud that was in there. But he does one step more, and he says that this is just going to be wiped out. So why? So that I can do it better. I'm going to redo this covenant thing with you, and I am going to redo it in a better way. Now, the people of Judah can't understand this. But one of the things that the people of Judah can and should have understood from the start is that God's covenant was always about fellowship and intimacy with him. Right? But fellowship and intimacy can only take place in the context of obedience. Because where there is no obedience, there is no fellowship. And when there is no obedience, there is no, there is no intimacy. Sacrifice, the sorry, might be the thing that can bring us back together for a time. But if that sorry, that sacrifice, is not cloaked and clothed in obedience, then our fellowship is gone and we don't really have intimacy. And that's what God is saying to his people. It's always been about fellowship. His covenant is that I would be your God and you would be my people, period. And in Exodus 19, when he says, he says, you will be a nation of priests. Think about how intimate that is. He's not saying you're going to be a nation of supplicants. You're not going to be a nation of sacrificing people. You are going to be a nation of priests. You are going to be a nation of the people that come into my very presence and minister to me. And that's his desire for Judah. And it's the desire that Judah has totally ignored and totally misplaced. And they think that sacrifice, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Um, Ben, you can come back up. One of the... One of the, the sacrificial traditions that I didn't mention was that the Hebrew nation had a tradition of meal offerings, okay? Meal offerings are, was when the, the people of Israel and Judah would bring their choice grains, and they would bring breads, and they would bring cakes, and they would, um, they would offer those to God. They were called the meal offerings. They would also bring the best wine, and they would pour that wine over the altar as a drink offering to God. And the symbolism of the meal offerings was this deep, deep fellowship because there are few things more intimate than sharing a meal with somebody. And this was God's way of saying, I am going to be intimate and fellowship with you by sharing the meal with you. And so the Hebrews had this practice of offering these meal offerings. And in, and in Jeremiah 7, the Lord says... Um, Do you you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. I can hear God's heart breaking in that sentence. Because beyond just the sacrifices of atonement, what the people of Judah had done was taken this intimate practice of meal offering and poured it out to other gods. 
right? Throughout scripture, we see the intimacy that God speaks with, with the vision of, of, of sexual intimacy between him and his people that, that, um, not literal, but that, that image, that picture of it. And now we see this other piece of it. I want to share meals with you. I want to be your God and you be my people. And you're pouring your best stuff out to other gods. N- not unlike at all the other things that, that Jeremiah has said about Judea making themselves whores to other gods as well. This is deeply, deeply intimate and heartbreaking. Because this goes to the heart of that covenant, that intimacy, that closeness, that fellowship. And God says, I'm done. Enough. You have been who you will be, and I am going to cut you off so that I can be who I am going to be because you have completely misunderstood it. Now, the last word in all of this um, verse 16, there's this really difficult passage that Justin mentioned. God is speaking directly to Jeremiah. And God says to Jeremiah, As for you, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Wow. (laughs) This is God's prophet, and he's saying, Don't intercede for these people anymore, because they have broken intimacy with me. They don't know who I am, they don't care who I am, and it's time. It's this is the line in the sand. And while the voice, the words that we hear in Jeremiah are harsh, what we experience is God's heart breaking deeply. Because there's nothing more you can do for these people. I have to spiritually circumcise them. I have to cut them off. We have to start this over again. And this temple and all the things that they held dear have to go away so that I can start it all over again. And you can almost imagine God's yearning here to reveal through Jeremiah the beauty and truth of Jesus Christ, can't you? Like, you know, God is just like, he's just like groaning to share this with him. I can, in in my sanctified imagination, I can feel it. Like God is just groaning to say, something better is coming if you would just listen. But he knows they won't listen. We, however, have the pleasure of, of now living in a new covenant where we have experienced God's deep, deep, deep mercy. We have the experience of knowing that we're at peace now. Judah was in conflict with God. At one point, we were in conflict with God. But now we have the experience of knowing this great peace that comes. The temptation when I, when I teach is always to go to the cross. I'm just not going to avoid it. <laughs> the cross is the point for Jeremiah 7 as well. Because if, if, if the people of Judah had continued in the way that they had, and if God had continued in the way that, that he had allowed them in his great mercy and in his great forbearance had allowed them to go for centuries, we would not today know the mercy of the cross and of the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's the point of Jeremiah 7. But, the, but what we hear is God's heart breaking for these people. It's easy for us to sit back 2,000, some 3,000 years in the future and look harshly on these people. And it's easy for us to, to see that. But what we really need to do is enter into the heart of God for these people. Because they were in so many ways just like us. And if we can experience his heart breaking, then the application that we're so quick to do is, 
it's, it's evident. It's immediate. And the real application is that God desires today to have that same level of intimacy and covenant and fellowship with you and me that he longed to have with the people of Judah. And God made it right. He made it right. You pray with me. God, thank you um, for who you are. God, forgive us for not seeing you um, well, God, but thank you for your deep mercy. Thank you for your revelation of your word and your heart through your word, God. And mostly thank you for your revelation of your heart for us and for all people through the sacrifice that you gave to atone for our sins through the death of Jesus Christ and for his blood. God, thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you call us today to intercede. Thank you that that avenue is open. Thank you that the throne and the mercy seat are open to us, God, by the blood of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for fulfilling your covenant despite the disobedience of your people, God. And thank you for calling us back to you this day. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.